Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Today we're going to talk about China's 20th National Congress, and mainly Xi Jinping's speech. We're going to talk about the Saudi Arabians, uh, the Saudi Arabian plan to become an infrastructure hub. And we're also going to talk about Turkey's plan to become a gas hub. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So. Russia has declared martial law in its newly annexed regions. That's Zaporozhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Luhansk. They've declared, they've declared martial law. So the military has been there. They have authority. And uh, pretty much to be expected. I mean, these are literal war zones. <laughs> this is the front line. So there's that. And more of those 300,000 Russian troops have made their way to the front. Uh, not all of them yet. Yet. But I expect... That sometime in either late November or early December, they'll probably be all there or all in position because we don't know if they're all going to get sent to specifically the regions that Russia's troops are in right now. We don't know if they're, they're going to go into the southern parts of Ukraine, all 300,000 of them, or if they're going to be spread out and maybe they're going to attack Ukraine from multiple sides again. We don't know that. So, But at the very least, we know that this mobilization is going to be completed, well, we don't know, but we can take a, a safe bet that it'll be completed by that time. And by that time, it's going to be nice and cold. The Europeans are going to be more concerned about their gas bills than what's going on in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians aren't going to have any power. So I expect one hell of a winter offensive. I'll say that. We have Russia and Ukraine... Uh, together completing the largest prisoner swap of the war, uh, with both sides exchanging 218 people. We have the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss resigning, and she's been replaced with Rishi Sunak. So, I I was about to say I've never heard of this guy, but then I, I didn't hear about Liz Truss either. So, <laughs> maybe, maybe he'll be in office a bit longer than she was. What was she, like six weeks? 44 days, uh, so we'll, we'll see, I mean, the fact that they've, this has been the shortest prime minister, uh, not, not the shortest, but like the shortest time in office for any prime minister in UK history is something, and what I'm talking about Liz Truss here, uh, who knows, maybe Maybe Sunak will come in and he'll be there for three weeks. But I feel like this is indicating that what's going on in the UK may actually be the result of a much longer-lasting political crisis than people expected, and definitely more than myself expected. And I guess we can trace this political crisis all the way back to the later days of Boris Johnson. Um, but what if we had to put a hard date in when this political crisis began, we could probably go with the death of Queen Elizabeth. Because, quite frankly, from that point onwards, things have been really started to go downhill. 
Now, whether that's a direct influence of her death or just that this is really bad timing, um, we'll, we'll learn with hindsight. But if I had to put a hard date on when things this crisis began, I'd say it was the death of Queen Elizabeth. That's definitely the moment that we started seeing things really start to fall apart in the UK. And now we have the shortest... Uh, I'm trying to, trying to think of a word here. The shortest serving. There we go. We have the shortest serving prime minister in UK history. Immediately following the Queen's death. And now we have a new guy. And we'll, we'll see what he's able to do. But uh, unless somebody is able to bring this ship around. And the only way they're going to do that is to reverse course on a lot of these policies, these foreign policy decisions that have shot them in the foot. Unless they can turn around those policies, I don't see how they're going to turn around the ship. Because no one's talking about domestic energy production. No one wants that. People are still busy talking about green energy production. But green energy, unless you're talking nuclear, ain't enough. It ain't enough. And it's not going to heat people's homes Windmills, well, wind turbines, and solar panels are not going to heat people's homes in the winter. Coal will. Europe has plenty of coal. Natural gas will. The Russians have plenty of that. And you have pipelines that are already built. If, and only if, you would undo the sanctions. I mean, Norway has some. They'll, Norway will be fine. The rest of Europe? Not so much. It's like... They deny themselves these energy resources and then refuse to change course when the negative ramifications of their policies come in full force. It's like, at this point, why wouldn't you reverse course? And I don't know. Some people speculate that it's a deliberate attempt. That That's, when you look at the way this is going down, it's, you, you can almost believe it. Heck. Otherwise, why Why would you do this? Why would you shut down nuclear power plants? And why would you sh refuse the Nord Stream pipelines? At this point in time, like, we, we've been talking about Germany and these Nord Stream pipelines all summer. When, when the going was still pretty alright, now it's starting to get cold. I mean, we're, we're at the end of... Uh, we're coming up on the end of October right now. It's the 24th right now. It's going to start getting cold really quickly. So at this point in the game, why would you continue this course, uh, this course of action, when you know what it's going to get you? Like, there's there's still time. As... As, as slim as that window is becoming, there is still time like the if they get to work now they can they'll only have to endure a little bit of winter and then they can have heat and they can have heat if they fix the the pipelines uh, get them patched up or something but they they keep going with this they this green energy thing like this this sanctions package it's not it's not going to go well it's not going to end well for any of them and the fact uh, none of them are really standing up to it. You get like one pr one member of parliament here or there. 
one person in the EU uh, parliament. Like, one dude over here in this obscure wing of the party. Like, where's the leadership? Where where are the big boys coming out and saying, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. This is going to lead to disaster. Like, Because we all know where this is going to get them. That's the crazy thing. It's, it's not like this is some uh, far-gone conclusion that Europe just has to do this and kill itself. It's not like this is just baked into the cards. It's not like there's nothing they can do. There's plenty that they can do. They can undo the sanction. They can invest. They can use the time that that buys them to invest in domestic energy production. Real energy production, not... Not more solar panels and windmills. I'm talking nuclear. I'm talking coal. That's what, that's what Europe has. Those are the domestic energy sources Europe has available to it. And no one's talking about those. People actively denounce coal. The Africans don't. The Indians don't. The Chinese don't. And they're industrializing. So, so what does that make of us? I mean, at least here in America, we have an out. We have... A whole political party that wants to use our natural resources to make us energy independent again. We have the resources to make us energy independent again. And we have the leadership within the parties, well, the party, willing to do so. Take your pick. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, who, who, you name it. They will tap the energy resources of this country if they're put in charge. We have an out. At multiple levels here in America. The same cannot be said for Europe. Because their problems come from foreign policy. Ours comes from domestic. So unless they can get the foreign policy right. They're just. They're, it's, it's, it's a wrap. But. They have. Actually they, they do have the energy. I mean I keep talking about coal and nuclear. They do have the energy. They, that's the crazy thing. They have the energy. Sure, they don't have natural gas. Sure, they don't have oil. Sure, they would prefer to use those, if anything. But you have the energy beneath your feet. France gets 70% of its electricity from nuclear power. Imagine if they had coal to cover the rest. They'd be in a way better situation than they are now. Instead, they depended on Russian natural gas. But here, if you're going to depend on that natural gas from Russia... You can't go along with a sanctions package against Russia. You, this is the problem with having contradictory policy. This is the problem with holding contradictory beliefs. You want to import your energy from this country that you believe to be uh, an abomination, uh, the greatest threat to democracy aside from China. So you want to get all of your energy from the, the greatest threat to democracy in Europe and then you want to sanction them and expect that they're just going to sit there and do absolutely nothing about it? Like, where, where does that idea come from? How does that idea make sense? What, what would have made more sense if we're talking about the interest of certain countries in Europe probably would have been for a lot of these countries to either stay out of the war or side with the Russians for the sake of their own energy. That's what it made sense. Not sanction the country you get all of your energy from. So it's... I... I don't know about those Europeans.
It's looking like the UK is in a, a predicament all of its own. But hey, if things get really, really bad and Europe goes back to being Europe, like the Europe we, we know and may or may not love, at least they're an island. So there's that. And, but it's just insane to watch the solution be right in front of people and then they just don't take it on so many levels we need natural gas so that we can we can have heat in the winter okay undo the sanctions no we we need we don't want to be dependent on russian energy okay invest in coal or nuclear no we're going to get our energy from russia it's like yeah yeah this is what we're going to do we're going to we're gonna. Uh, you have France, uh, France, Portugal, and Spain. They've agreed to have a, a green energy corridor. Uh, so that what what this is about is there there's a pipeline running through the, the countries, and it was going to carry just natural gas. You know, common sense. Instead, the French come along and they say, "Hey, let's have a green energy corridor, and we're gonna make it so the pipeline's only gonna carry natural gas temporarily." And then we're going to convert it over to hydrogen. Now, when exactly this, this the, the hydrogen would start running through it, when exactly that part comes in, they, the French did not specify, but the Portuguese and the Spanish, to probably what's going to end up being their own detriment, uh, they've agreed. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think the Europeans are very attached to the idea of Europe. Because, and I get it. I get it. The, the last time they were, they were Europe as we know it, uh, they were, they, they were fighting the greatest war in human history, the Second World War. So it was a very bad time for them. So you can understand the emotional attachment to the idea of a unified Europe. But why would Spain and Portugal sacrifice their well-being for France? And why would France sacrifice its well-being for Germany? At a certain point, the national interest has to come into play. And preferably at points where it makes sense to use the national interest, like energy and cost of living. I mean, goodness, this, you're talking thousands of dollars. People who just literally can't pay their energy bill anymore. It's just, through no, through no fault of their own, it's just skyrocketed and they, they, can't, they can't pay it. They just cannot pay this damn thing. And for what? Be, we stand with Ukraine? Yeah? That's going to fly. Uh, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. It's not going to fly at all. Multiple governments in Europe have fallen, and this has fallen under the the parliamentarian definition of the word government. Like they they've been ousted. Uh, look at Italy, look at Sweden, look at the UK. Boris Johnson was there. Now he's gone. He got replaced with Liz Truss. Now she's gone. Now she's gone. Look at France. They had their election. Macron maintained the presidency but lost the parliament. Hungary and the, Victor Orban got us uh, another landslide, so I guess he's doing something right. What about the rest of Europe? What happens? What, what happens when the Netherlands goes through its next election cycle? 
with these farmers protesting in the streets. You think the ruling you think the ruling party is going to going to stick stick around? They're going to get ousted. They're going to get ousted. Like these policies are leading to the fall of these governments in Europe. And they're being replaced with people who uh, aren't necessarily promising change, I'm going to be honest with you. They're not, not necessarily promising the the necessary changes that would get them out of the problem. But if the trend continues, you're going to end up with people who will promise those changes and who will make them. All because we couldn't exercise a little bit of pragmatism now. And it's uh, and you you can probably even add the Democrats in America to that list. We're not in Europe, but I have a feeling they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna get violated this uh, this upcoming midterm election. And that's uh, putting it lightly. <laughs> and and they, and they won't be able to blame Trump for it. They they, they can't. He's not he's he's not here. He's not around. He's he's off in Mar-a-Lago somewhere. So the, the, this is all them, and they're gonna take the blame, just like I said in my previous episode. They're gonna, people are just gonna blame the ruling party for the problems, and unfortunately for the Democrats, they happen to be the ruling party. We have a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of tomfoolery going down in Europe. The Polish are increasing their arms purchases from South Korea. They're buying tanks, artillery, and multiple rocket launch systems. Now, why are they buying these? Are they arming themselves for the possibility of having to fight Russia, or are they? rearming themselves because they gave away their stuff to Ukraine probably somewhere in between uh, you have people across Europe they're protesting these high gas prices and their country's involvement in the Russo-Ukrainian war again point to the Netherlands look to Germany look to Austria there's protests in literally every country at this point in Europe and in America well we'll see in the ballot box it hasn't the war in Ukraine hasn't hit us as hard as Europe, and that's because we have energy. We're we're only at four to five dollars a gallon nationwide, only. But goodness, we have North and South Korea. Speaking of South Korea, with its m- military equipment, North and South Korea have exchanged warning shots. South Korea fired some warning shots at a North Korean ship when it crossed the maritime border between the two countries. The North then responded by firing 10 rocket artillery rounds off of its west coast. So they, they had a little bit of a standoff there. You have Germany and their defense and foreign ministers, Christine Lambrecht and Annalena Baerbock, respectively. Uh, Annalena Baerbock is particularly infamous for making a speech saying she did not care what the German people thought. She was going to support Ukraine no matter what. That... And it's things like that that are... <laughs> you're just asking for trouble at that point. You're just asking to be taken out of power by force. Uh, uh, hopefully through the ballot box. But depending on how some of these people respond, if one of them were to try to cling on to power and make a strange situation, you could end up with an actual revolution in one of these countries in Europe. You could end up with that. And I guess that's one of the benefits of democratic-style governance is that it can avoid revolutions by ousting people peacefully at the ballot box. But look at the conditions people are being put under. 
arbitrarily from these this this policy. I mean, it's and it for no material gain. For no material gain. What has Europe gained from the war? What has America gained from the war? By forget Europe. I don't care about Europe. What have we gained? We we went all in, and what do we get? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We get to lose a hundred billion dollars. We get to lose a third of our HIMARS. We get to lose at least a third of our HIMARS ammunition. We get to lose a whole country to another country that we have made out to be our adversary. That's what we get. We get to be humiliated on the world stage by investing so much in a country that lost. We get to empower Nazis that in Ukraine. Like, what are we gaining from this? We gain nothing. Meanwhile, you have conflicts flaring up in a whole bunch of other hotspots. Like, we, we were talking about, we were talking about the Eastern Mediterranean last week. With Turkey getting more active. We're talking about the Korean border right now. We're talking about China-Taiwan a couple weeks ago, and actually we'll have a little bit more to say about that today. At the same time, we're talking about Eastern Europe. Like, all these hotspots are just flaring up now. You have the resumption of the civil war in Ethiopia. You have the resumption of fighting in Libya. All this fighting, all these wars, all these conflicts flaring up at the same time, we have a problem on our hands. We have a real problem on our hands, and it's and it's uh, pretty strange that it's all happening at the same time. But, you know, we could have been in a better position to deal with it. I'm not saying that it's a direct result of the war in Ukraine, but had we not involved ourselves in it, we would be in a better position to respond to some of these other things, uh, considering that most people in positions of power want to be involved in all these things. You know me, I don't. I would leave before uttering a word about these problems. But, yeah, it's so strange watching people look at the problem and the obvious solution attached to that problem. It's as if it's as if the problem came in a package and in the, the little instructions manual, it told you how to solve the problem and they just chose not to go with the solution. It's... So strange to watch. Very, very strange to watch. But uh, but uh, going back to the Germany and the defense and foreign ministers, Christine Lambrecht and Annalena Baerbock, they called for yet more aid to Ukraine, specifically for the 900, uh, not 900, the 697 million that they were already sending, that's with an M, to be increased to 2.17 billion with a B. Again, what did they gain? Nothing. They, they gave away their air defense system to Ukraine before the, their own military got it. It's insane. Meanwhile, you have President Lukashenko of Belarus saying that Belarus has no intention to fight anyone and that it does not need war. He said, quote, we are not going to go anywhere today. No war as of now. We don't need it. End quote. I, I, find, I find the wording of that very suspicious and suspect. But he later went on to say, quote, we have to calm down. We must all do our own business if we want to have no war. End quote. Now, the fact that he said we're not going anywhere today and no war as of now, at the same time that you're forming this 
joint unit between Belarusians and Russians in Belarus suggests to me that, well, he's technically telling the truth. No war now. We're not going anywhere today. But tomorrow, though, now tomorrow we might be going to war. But for now, you know, no war for now. For now, hey, he, he told the truth. He just didn't tell the whole truth. Because I don't see a reason to form a joint unit like that if you're not going to participate in the war. But I guess that that's sort of the, the, the trick there. You have a joint unit between Belarusians and Russians. So you can send them into the battle. And, oh, it's it's just a Russian. They're under, they're under the command of the Russian military. Not They're not ours. They're, they're not ours. They just happen to be led by our field officers and our generals and our, you know, <laughs> our combat officers and our commanders. But they're under the leadership of the Russian military. They, they, they take their marching orders from the Russian military. It's, a, it's an attache, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's, that's the, the trick there. But so much, so much going on. So much going on. So much that doesn't make sense looking at things from a rational perspective. But I guess I guess we're just dealing with lots of irrational people. But we, uh, while people in Europe and America might be irrational, there are lots of much more rational people outside of Europe and America. And we'll talk about those people and what they're doing in just a moment. All right, and we're back to talk about the meat of this episode. And we'll start with... Hmm, I think we'll start with... We have good stories today. Ah, fuck it, we'll just start with China. <laughs> so, China is staying the course. Last week, China had its 20th National Congress. President Xi Jinping gave a speech. Uh, they called it a report, but I'm going to call it a speech because uh, that's... That's what it was to me, but hey, I'll just call it what it officially is, just in case there is meaning behind the difference. But hey, uh, he gave a speech, and in his speech, there was a very strong emphasis on continuing the massive development effort going on in China, as well as implementing what they called socialism with Chinese characteristics. In the speech, he touted the initiative to end poverty and the many, many, many people that they have lifted out of abject poverty. They touted the modernization of China's armed forces, which is something that we've been witnessing, particularly when it comes to their air force and their navy uh, and their missiles. Definitely the missiles. They, they have hypersonic missiles and we don't. That's definitely something. They, he touted reining in the unrest in Hong Kong. He touted the massive growth of the Chinese economy. They have grown to become 18% of the world's economy which is, I believe, up 7% from 10 years ago. At least that's what he said. He will, he applauded the major advancements that China's made in the fields of science and manufacturing. And I, I gotta say, they've definitely made advancements in the fields of manufacturing. They manufacture everything. They manufacture everything. They're even getting close to manufacturing chips of equal to or greater quality than what you'll find in Taiwan. And if they get their hands on that, well, then we can expect chip prices to fall dramatically because the Chinese industrial capacity is just so much greater than Taiwan. So, I, I, guess, I guess, oddly enough, I'm partially rooting for something like that to happen. Uh, 
because they, they also have more better access to the resources required to manufacture these so they'll they'll be a real competitor a real competitor and the, they may even overtake taiwan may they probably will if i'm being completely honest and if i'm being completely honest it'll most likely be a good thing for everyone if china manufactures the chips well if even if there is a war between china and taiwan the chinese chips are going to get out to the rest of the world the taiwanese not so much now i mean personally i still advocate domestic chip production of our own forget relying on other countries for a man-made resource that's what i always say but if it has to be someone china would probably be the best and they're going to get there they've increased their ability to manufacture aircraft and they've increased their ability to manufacture missiles and they're even pushing boundaries that we ourselves have not reached again they have hypersonics and we don't they have they're able to build really small nuclear reactors them along with the russians and we can't make nuclear reactors that small uh they they have thorium salt reactors they uh, they actually china's a really big builder of nuclear reactors like they they build these things a lot so you can you can see uh, actually china's a really good example of what i mean when i say coal and nuclear is would be a great combo for europe because china's a, a coal-powered nation they have coal and they have nuclear and they can they're, they're sure they have the belt and road now and they import a lot of oil by sea but give them some time give them some time i mean they're building energy infrastructure with russia as well with natural gas but china is perhaps the best example of how far coal and nuclear can take you because they have, they have one and a half billion people so per capita they're not consuming anywhere near as much oil as say the united states would and yet they're able to look at how much they will do they're able to be the world's workhorse they're able to be the world's second largest economy and grow at these incredible rates they they don't have to worry about power outs and blackouts i mean they did for a little bit back in i think it was 2021 they had a series of blackouts that imports some more coal that part of that can be traced back to their trade war with australia and the embargo on australian coal uh, a missed opportunity for us we could have sold them american coal and we both could have benefited from that i'll never let it go but you just just saying america first uh, if we applied it we we'd be much better off but things like that china doesn't have to worry about freezing this winter china doesn't have to worry about blackouts china doesn't have to worry about getting drawn into the ukraine war even though they, they're allied with russia but here's the 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 mastery of this strategic partnership thing here's the the masterclassness of this all that this the ingeniousness the absolute brilliance of strategic partnership instead of straightforward alliance china is not obligated to fight russia's wars and russia is not obligated to fight theirs now they have an interest to support one another and they do but they're not obligated to fight each other's wars and that's the the big kicker here so everything we're seeing in ukraine that's all russia whereas any country in europe would have to come to the defense of another country in europe for them to even stand a chance in a war like this if the ukrainians had invaded them the ukrainians could probably have beaten most of the armies in europe and that's just a fact of the matter 
not necessarily because the Ukrainians themselves had the greatest army in the world, but because the Europeans have fallen so low. And the Ukrainian army is, at the very least, is competent and capable. They, they fought the Russians this long. They, they fought the Russians this long. We, we got to give credit where credit is due. Could we say the same if we switched places with, say, Poland? Germany? Romania? Would they have lasted as long as the Ukrainians did? France might. France might. I mean, they produce all their own military equipment. But can they produce it at a rate that is enough to fight the Russians? I don't know. I don't think they can. I, I hear that the United States are t manufactures like 5,000 of these of our HIMARS rounds a year. When we're talking about in the span of a couple months, we've run, the Ukrainians have run through like 12,000 rounds. That's more than double what we make. That's almost triple what we produce. The Russians aren't running out of artillery. So that, that's uh, the major benefit here of this strategic partnership thing. They're, they're not chained. They're, they're not held down by the constraints of a formal alliance. And the, thus it's allowed them to maintain a neutral footing. Essentially, China's been able to do what I advocate doing on so many levels. They have coal and nuclear. They they have a manufacturing base. They stay out of other people's wars and even maintain trade relations with as many countries as they can. Now, while I don't necessarily say we should go out and build high-speed railways in the Middle East and in Africa and in, in Pakistan and all this, I say we build high-speed railways in America and we leave it at that. <laughs> Maybe we might build a pipeline to you, but hey, you take what you can get. But now that I'm really sitting here thinking about it, China is such an example of, economically speaking, and not like I do not endorse their style of government, but I don't need to. Just look at the economic things that they do. And shit, I'm I'm not even a socialist. <laughs> I'm not even a socialist. But look at the things they do. It, they do what makes sense, and that's just all that it is. They do what makes sense. They don't have oil. Okay, we'll just use coal. We'll, we'll use nuclear. We have a neighbor who specializes in building natural gas pipelines. We're going to get natural gas from them. Oh, you, there's oil in the Middle East? Well, how about we, we build a couple railways there? And that way, in, if the Americans get uppity and try to embargo us by sea, we can still have a lifeline, you know? Think, things like that, just... Doing what makes sense to do, it's ah, oh, you, you can you can really see the difference when a country does what makes sense for it to do, and when a collection of countries wink wink do things that make no sense for them to do. It's it's so glaring, so glaringly obvious the difference in the two. And again, you do not have to like China. Like, I, I'm pretty neutral towards them. Um, many people just don't like them. They, they think they're authoritarian. But th they do what makes sense for them to do. And all we would have to do to be in similar, if not better, positions... Because we in America, we have energy. We, we have things that China doesn't. Uh, we just don't use them. <laughs> we just don't use... Them. We even have a better geostrategic position. We're, an, we're functionally an island. We have technically the greatest trade access of any country 
in the world. Aside from, you know, everybody else in the new world. We, we don't talk about them. But we, we could do that. We could be the great trading nation, like I advocated for in the second anniversary episode. We could be the great trading nation. But instead, we do things that don't make sense for us to do. What China does make do things that make sense for it to do. And you can really see the difference, especially at this point in time, when all these decisions of the past are really mounting up, and you can see the results of all these past decisions and how they've negatively impacted us. We have no manufacturing base. We went through a whole pandemic. Thank God it wasn't lethal, you know. But we still don't manufacture our own prescription drugs. We still don't manufacture masks. We still don't manufacture our own personal protective equipment. Like, we got Elon Musk to manufacture ventilators back when ventilators were all the rage. Who talks about ventilators now? Is that the the limit of our industrial capacity? One guy deciding to manufacture one thing? The Chinese had whole ships full of all these things and turned them around to come back to China and service China. They're still in a zero-COVID policy right now. They manufacture their drugs. I mean, we, we talk about the, the price of drugs here in America. If we manufactured them and, and did it en masse, we could bring the unit costs down. But we don't manufacture anything. China does. And again, just looking at all these bad past decisions on our part and all these good past decisions on the part of the Chinese... And looking where it's gotten the two of us, you can really see how all those little decisions over time have added up to really big results. Bad results for us, but good results for the Chinese. And now you have people obsessed over what the Chinese have and trying to get it. We're not going to be able to get that immediately. We have to take the time. I mean, when did China finish their civil war in like 1949? And they, they didn't even bother opening up to the West... Until like the late 70s. And it wasn't until what? 2014, 15? That they even bothered with the Belt and Road? Now we're in 2022? So that's 1949 all the way up to 2022. That's over 70 years. 73 if I'm not mistaken. 73 years they've spent... On themselves, but 60, if we're going off the start of the Belt and Road. They spent 60 years focused on just themselves before doing any of these things around the world. I say we go for longer focusing on ourselves and do nothing <laughs> for the world. If the Chinese want to build a build infrastructure projects in Africa, cool, let them. It's not the Africans said no. They, they said yes. A lot of them said yes. Almost every, if you look at a map, all the signatories of the Belt and Road, almost all of Africa is colored in. So they've consented. Leave them be. That's We don't need to go stop them. Why waste our time and energy stopping them from something they want? Why don't we build a high-speed rail in America for a change, you know? Instead of going trying to go destroy what other people have. It's like, nah. But you can really see the difference. The tangible difference between... Good decisions that have added up over time on the part of the Chinese and bad decisions that have added up over time on the part of the West. 
you uh, and uh, I, I have to get on with the rest of what Jinping was talking about. He, he, he touted advancements in science and manufacturing. He touted the exploration efforts that China's making in Mars and the moon. They sent a rover to Mars, I believe. And they're, they have plans for a permanent base on the moon. They're doing explorations there as well. Uh, they, they have their own space station as well. They even have pioneered developments in deep sea exploration. So getting to the oceans. And as well as touting the ability. Uh, well, then them having done this thing where they've kept China in an advantageous position amidst the rapidly changing geopolitical landscape. I mean, you look at the war in Ukraine, you look at COVID, and you look at the... Now we're talking about countries applying to join the BRICS. And you have the struggle over oil prices between the G7 countries and OPEC+. Plus. China hasn't been hurt by any of these anywhere near as much as other countries have. Namely countries in the West, in Europe, in America. I mean, let's, let's run through the list. The war in Ukraine. We bet the family farm on Ukraine, and the Europeans did too, and we sanctioned Russia with the deliberate intention of trying to destroy their currency. And by extension, their economy and the lives of its people. It didn't work. In fact, it backfired. Now the Europeans are about to have a humanitarian crisis. And we're about to have unnecessarily high gas prices. Look at the look at COVID. China, they became the model. You, you remember way back five million years ago when COVID first hit, everyone was talking about the Chinese model and, oh, the, that's how you got to do it. You got to lock down real hard and you just let it get out of the system and and that, everyone was talking about that as if that was just, just, just settled science. Now look at us. No masks. No, no vaccines. Oh, all, all that stuff is desperately trying to fade away into the back and not be remembered as the crime that it was. And the Chinese are still with their zero COVID policy. Uh, three years on. No, no one's doing the, what the Chinese are doing anymore. But way back then, th that was the model. That was the model. So in that regard, they successfully managed to put themselves in an advantageous position, even when they were at a disadvantageous position. The outbreak of this virus. Which their policy towards it, they're still stuck with as of now. Uh, they had more, much more pushback in the United States, thank goodness. You have the expansion of the BRICS, which is an overtly positive thing for China. They they are the C in BRICS, and so they've they're benefiting from this. Uh, Russia's the R, so they're all benefiting from this. You have look at the struggle over oil prices between G7 and OPEC. Who is winning that struggle? The the G7 is talking about putting price caps on Russian oil. The Russians said straightforward, if you participate in this, we're just not going to send you oil. And OPEC said, hmm. When Biden goes to Arabia, says, hey, can you produce more oil? Then that man goes, I'll think about it. He goes to OP the OPEC Plus Summit and goes, yeah, we're going to cut production by 2 million barrels a year. Wait, no, not, not a year. 2 million barrels of oil a day. They produce a lot of oil. We're going to cut production. For, forget increasing it. We're going to cut it. We're not even going to keep it the same. We're going to cut production. 2% of our production. Yep. That's what we're going to do.
we're going to raise the price of oil. And now, gas prices are going back up in here in the United States. And I can only imagine what's about to happen to the Europeans. It's like, who's winning that struggle? It ain't us. <laughs> but the Chinese stayed out of it. So they don't have to worry about this. They, they get oil and gas at a discount from the Russians. That They're negotiating deals to trade for oil with Saudi Arabia in Yuan. That they're, they're in an advantageous position because they were neutral and they're taking advantages. They're taking opportunities where they see it. Like what I advocated for in the second anniversary episode for us to do. The Chinese are already doing. And we can do it ourselves as well. And we don't even need to be adversarial towards the Chinese or the Russians in doing so. We just take good opportunities for us. Literally just looking at ourselves and what we need and focusing on how we can get that through diplomacy, domestic production, and, you know, trade, we could benefit so much from just what exists in the world, barring new innovations, barring the discovery of new deposits of resources, barring advances in technology that demand a new slate of resources for industry or this or that gadget. No one was really talking about lithium and cobalt back when we were in the first wave of industrialization it was do you have iron or do you have alum do you have steel do you have coal so that you can make steel uh do, do you even know what steel is <laughs> like do you have a railroad like do you have wood do, do you have these things and uh, later on do you have oil do you have aluminum do you have uh, special metals that you can use to make steel stronger like as things go on, new different metals become more or less important. So as time goes on, there might be different materials that become important. We can acquire them through trade. Oh, just get a trade deal. As simple as that. That's what the Chinese are going to do. And we could do it ourselves. And we don't need to come to blows. We don't need to be enemies with these countries. We don't need to be enemies with any country, quite frankly. We're just not in a physical location to where that would be a necessity. We're just so far removed. But looking at the bad decisions we make, we're screwed <laughs> because we sacrifice our energy independence. China is an energy importing nation and they're doing better in the midst of this crisis than Europe. An energy importing place on the map. China's doing better than Europe, even though they're both net energy importers. Technically, we're a net energy importer as well, just not as much as Europe. Not as much as China. But the Chinese aren't worrying about blackouts. They're not worrying about a cold, uh, a dark winter. The Europeans are. So how, how do you square that circle? It's all in the policy. It's all in the behavior. China didn't sanction Russia. And that, that's all there is to it. It's like as I go on, I I feel like I'm I'm sucking China's clock right now, <laughs> but, but uh, I mean it, I mean it. It's it's the difference between good policy and pursuing things that make sense for you to do, and what that gets you, versus going along with ideology, going along with emotion and feelings, and what that gets you, and doing things that doesn't make sense for you to do, what that gets you.
And it's such a big difference, and it's having such an impact, a real impact on people's lives. This isn't theoretical anymore. This is, oh, it's just a difference in policy, a difference in approach. No, people are going to freeze because of one idea, and people are going to be industrializing in the other. So, take your pick. I mean, goodness, I, he's, they've managed to keep China in an, in an advantageous position throughout all of these. He also said uh, in his speech, he talked about Taiwan. He said that resolving the, ta- the resolving of the Taiwan issue is a matter for the Chinese, a matter that must be solved by us Chinese people. We will continue to strive for a peaceful reunification with the greatest sincerity and the utmost effort. But we will never promise to renounce the use of force, and we reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. End quote. So, this is clearly directed at us. Uh, and uh, Well, actually, no, the, the, I, I didn't finish the quote. This is, uh, he says, we reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. This is directed only to interference by outside forces and the few separatists who seek Taiwan independence with their separatist activities, end quote. So now that I've actually finished the quote, that's clearly directed at us. Like there's, there's no, and there's no one else that he could possibly be pointing the finger to what the the Europeans, as if they were going to come to the defense of Taiwan, they're, they're going to sail their ships all the way around. This is not the 1800s. This is not the 1800s. They might sail a ship or two. They're not. They're not landing men on Taiwan Island. That's the United States. That's potentially Japan if it chose to do so. Maybe Australia, and that's about it. There, there, there aren't that many countries you can really point the finger to with statements like that. And so it's clearly directed at us. They will use force if they feel that it's necessary, and considering. We have people like Nancy Pelosi and other nameless folks in Congress who I can't be bothered to name who do nothing good on a good day also deciding to go to Taiwan for no tangible reason or tangible gain for the United States. When you have people doing that, these political stunts that are going to get this this island killed, like we got Ukraine killed. There, there. I don't. There's not going to be a Ukraine when this war is over. There's not going to be a Ukraine when this war is over. We squandered that. We made that happen, and we're going to do the same thing to Taiwan with these political stunts. Like people, oh, she's so brave for standing up to China. China can't tell um, American Congress people where they can and can't go. That is not the issue here. The issue is, why did you go in the first place? What, what did you gain? Because you didn't go there to talk policy. You didn't go there to talk trade. You, you didn't go there to talk, hey, maybe we should de-escalate things in this region. You didn't go there for any of that. You went there to just to go. I'll never forget, I was watching uh, when that happened, all the, the news surrounding it, and you had people talking about, oh, this is about her legacy. I don't care about her legacy. Get away from me. But when you have people making decisions like that and thinking that those are good decisions to make, you can see who exactly is being these statements by Xi Jinping. You can see who those statements are being directed at. It's us. There's no other, there's no other one. There's no other country. Even the Japanese are quieter 
on this matter than we are. The Australians talk about it all day and night, but they don't do much. They don't do much. Because at the end of the day, they're a thousand miles away from China. So you, you make that make sense on how China is the greatest threat to their sovereignty. All they need is to make sure that Indonesia never flips for the Chinese. And then they'll be safe for the rest of their days. That's about it. They really don't have to do much. And we are on the other side of the largest ocean on the planet. And yet we're sending the Nash, the Coast Guard. We're sending our Coast Guard to the South China Sea. Why is our Coast Guard in the South China Sea? It, that makes sense. You, you, can, you can really see where these, these statements are being directed at. And you can see why they would direct them at us. They say that they want peaceful... But they'll resort to force if they have to. We're going to be the ones to force them to use force. We're going to be the ones to force them to use force. Uh, we're going to be the ones to push them to use force. There we go. That sounds better. But it's it's going to be us. It's going to be us. And it's a, it's a real shame. But, again, this is nothing new. By the way, this is what they've said all the time. But... Yeah, it's. I, I guess the, the main takeaway from this little segment here is that you can really, really see the difference. If not earlier, you can see it now. The difference between what good decisions over a long period of time can do for a country and what bad decisions can do to even the, the, the dominant power of the world. We, we were the, the sole superpower just a couple decades ago. And you can see what such a long string of bad decisions and bad choices have done to us. We had a manufacturing sector in the 60s. It was still there in the 70s. It was uh, still functional in the 80s. Now look at us. We go through a pandemic and we can't manufacture our own prescription drugs. Even that wasn't enough to motivate us to get off our ass and manufacture something. Instead, we'd rather talk about how we're going to fight a war over... Taiwan to secure chips which is the craziest thing to me we're going to fight a war to secure someone else's goods like it's a man made resource it's not like this is some natural resource it's not like this is the the, the tesseract where we're fighting a war over <laughs> this can power our civilization for for thousands of years, if we, as, as long as we just win the war for, for the Tesseract or the All Spark, it's we're not fighting over these things. We're not, we're fighting over a man-made resource that we already manufacture. Intel, Apple, they manufacture chips. Invest in our own industrial plant, and you solve the problem of America's chip dependency. But we can't do that. We 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 would rather it, go fight a war. To secure someone else's manufacturing capacity. We would rather fight a war. To secure someone else's manufacturing capacity. And someone else's goods. And someone else's economy. And someone else's jobs. Than manufacture ourselves. But that, that's that's all I'll say on China. We got, a, we got other things to talk about. We have the Saudis. The Saudis. They're on the move. They're, they are now seeking to attract... 40 billion reals, and that's about 10 billion dollars, U.S. dollars, 
uh, they're trying to attract 40 billion rials to be directed at infrastructure investments. Uh, I should stress that they say that these are supply chain investments. I'm going to call them investment uh, infrastructure investments because infrastructure is a shorter word than supply chains. And it's easier with, for the tongue. But they're, they're trying to attract lots of money for infrastructure. The Saudi prince Mohammed bin Salman, he said that 10 billion rials would be available as incentives for supply chain investors. And this comes as a part of the a broader diversification attempt. Because the, the country has set its sights on diversifying its economy and they've, they've had their sights on doing this for a while now. So I guess now they've decided that infrastructure is the, the best step, the best first step to get towards that diversification. Uh, and what are they diversifying their economy for? Well, they're, they're very dependent on oil. Like, the price of oil determines everything in Arabia. But they don't want it to be that way. Oil is very powerful, but they don't want it to be a double-edged sword. Because they engage in price wars. They, they were engaging in price wars back when Trump was in office. And what you had was them pumping out so much oil that it brought the price of oil down globally. Now that hurts them in the short term. And then whenever they choose to stop, whenever they choose to slow down their production of oil, they, they benefit from the ensuing price hike. But if their economy is more diversified then they can, they'll have more staying power in those price wars. They'll be able to sustain them for longer and thus gain a bigger market share when they raise the price again. Uh, dirty games, but hey, uh, you do what you gotta do. At least, again, it makes sense for them to do. So, diversifying their economy would also make them less dependent on sudden shocks to the supply of oil. Like, say, what if a country say, on the other side of the planet with ridiculous reserves of oil where to s just start tapping it and become energy independent and become a net exporter again. Like, what if, what, if, what if a country like that exists? And what if they had a leadership that was willing to do it? And they became such a big producer and at such low cost that they, they could compete with us, Arabia, on per barrel cost. Like, what if a country like that existed? And decided to do that thing. We would we would be in some serious jeopardy. Like what if they did that thing and stuck with it for more than say four years? What if they what if they did that thing? Like what would happen to us? We we would we would be struggling for a very long time until some slow person came along and deliberately sabotaged their energy production, you know? We we'd be in a really bad place. Us us we being Saudi Arabia, if a country like that were to exist, say on the other side of the ocean, with a population of maybe three hundred million people. I'm talking about America, by the way, but if they diversify their economy, they'll insulate themselves from sudden increases in the global supply of oil, like what's inevitably going to happen with the United States at some point in time. Like, we have the oil, we have the ability to tap it, it, and we have the political will to do so in the form of the Republican Party, namely the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. So it's going to happen. Like, it's going to happen. So this diversification will actually help them in the long run deal with a long-term competitor 
uh, in the volume of oil and even in the price. Because America was producing lots of oil at a decently cheap price. We were we were edging down the, the per barrel cost of our oil. Getting closer and closer to what the Saudis pumped their oil out at. And so the, they're, they have lots of reasons to diversify their economy. And they're starting with infrastructure. They want to invest 500 billion rials. That's 125 billion dollars in the roads, airports, seaports, and other infrastructure over the course of the decade. So this is a really big medium-term thing that they want to do. I imagine at some point, probably later on, they might even start thinking about high-speed rail, or more rail in general, wherever they can. You know, Arabia is a desert, so that really complicates it. But having rail, especially high-speed rail in a place like that, where you can move goods across that giant de- Central Arabian desert from one coastline to the next, because they have coasts in the Gulf and in the Red Sea. That, that'd be a real game-changer for the movement of goods, because what they want to be is an infrastructure hub. That's the goal here. They want to become an infrastructure hub in the region, which would essentially make them a more attractive and economical destination for the movement of goods through their country. Uh, so if you were to have high-speed rail running across the, the width of the country so that you can move goods from one coastline in the Gulf to the other coastline in the Red Sea or the other way around, you could essentially cut off hundreds of miles of sea travel by doing that. If you were to have, say, a terminal with high-speed rail links right at the edge of Saudi Arabia, like the northwesternmost edge of Saudi Arabia, where like you right after you come out the Suez Canal, we're looking at a map of Africa here. Uh, we're looking at a or a map of the Middle East, you know. Uh, right after you come out the Suez Canal, we're we're moving along the coast of Egypt here, and you have like a terminal that's in Saudi Arabia. If you have it right there, and you can have high-speed rail running straight across the country to the Gulf, or maybe even you work with the UAE. Or you work with Oman so that you can have it go through there and you can bypass that choke that choke point, uh, the, the Straits of Hormuz. You can go straight through Arabia and cut off hundreds of miles of sea travel. And you can go straight from, you can have your goods, not necessarily you, but you can have your goods go straight from the Suez Canal, straight through Arabia. And then they can be reloaded onto another ship in, say, Oman. If we're going past the Strait of Hormuz, maybe if you want to just go to the other side of Arabia. But you can cut off hundreds of miles of travel time and load it onto another ship. And then it's that much closer to destinations in Asia. Or if it's the other way around, you can have things coming in from Asia. They land in Oman. They go through the high-speed rail all the way up to the northwest edge of Saudi Arabia, now they're right next to the, the Suez Canal. You cut off hundreds of miles from that journey. And so it's uh, it would become economical for things that are like time-sensitive delivery. You can take that shortcut. Maybe it costs you an extra buck or two. Maybe, maybe it doesn't cost you much at all because it's subsidized by the Saudis. So there, there's a potential thing right there. 
And this is just me spitballing ideas for what they might end up doing or might attempt to do that wouldn't really make them the infrastructure hub that they seek to be. Like, infrastructure like that would be a real game changer for them and would make people really look at Saudi Arabia as a destination. Like, hmm, I could sail my goods around the Arabian Peninsula by water and it would take maybe an extra month. Or I could sail it through the Suez Canal unload it in Saudi Arabia, let it take the high-speed rail to Oman, load it back up on another ship, and send it back to where where I was going, and just continue the journey from there, and I can cut maybe uh, a couple weeks off the travel time. Things like that. Things like that would really play into the decisions of corporate and logistical hubs for corporations around the world. It'd be a real game changer and would make Arabia the infrastructure hub that it seeks to be. And so this is a very interesting parallel to our next story. And again, we have examples of good decisions and where they can take you, even when you're not necessarily a major military power, which Arabia is not. But good decisions can do good things. And it's a very interesting parallel to the next story here, which is Turkey. And I say it's a parallel because Turkey is seeking to become a major gas hub. Not an infrastructure hub, a gas hub. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, President Erdogan of Turkey has said to its member, he was making an address to the Turkish parliament, and he said that he has reached an agreement with Vladimir Putin of Russia to create a gas hub in Turkey. He went on to say how Europe could get its gas from that gas hub in Turkey, And this story is corroborated by Putin, who himself said that, quote, Turkey remains the most reliable route for deliveries today, even to Europe, end quote. So two takeaways from that. One is, I guess Turkey is going to become a gas hub now. But the other takeaway is that Putin still does want to supply Europe with gas. So again, the, the, the lifeline is there, if only the Europeans will take it. I, I I didn't think they would do it, but I guess Putin's more humanitarian than people give him credit for, because if he would have cut off the gas and just leave it that way, you'd have a real humanitarian crisis in Europe, which the Europeans are probably going to go for anyway, because they won't concede that they, their policy was bad, and that the sanctions were bad, but nonetheless, those are two big takeaways I get from those statements. Uh, but in very related news, however... The Turkstream pipeline, uh, according to Russia's big biggest energy company, Gazprom, is around 90% complete and should be operational before the year is over. So, this is a pipeline running from Russia through Turkey into southern Europe, uh, similar to how Nord Stream ran from Russia to Germany uh, along northern Europe, and they have the, the Yamal pipeline, which ran through Ukraine into central Europe. So, you had three major routes for gas to get into Europe. The Europeans have chosen not to use the Nord Stream 1 or 2 pipelines, and the United States sabotaged both of them at the same time. They're salvageable, but damaged. And there's a war in Ukraine, so that pipeline is actually not quite as functional as it could be, although I'm sure the Russians will deal with that when the war is over. But all this gas, all this energy diplomacy going on, And the Turks, luckily for them, have a leader with their interests in mind. And I cannot wait 
for when this war is over to talk about all the things that we've seen Turkey do. Uh, it's 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 shocking. It's shocking. Uh, but hey, I'll save that for the special episode. Uh, but I mean, if you paid attention long enough, you'll you'll know everything I'm gonna say. But having it all condensed down like that will really put it on into perspective. But you have Turkey becoming a, ga- a gas hub. That's they've agreed to do. They've agreed to do it. But judging from all this, it looks like Turkey is going to become an even more important player in the region than they've already been throughout this whole conflict. Like we we've been watching the constant growth of Turkey's importance since this war began, and this is as it stands the epitome of that. This is the climax so far. They're going to become a gas hub. They're going to win the war without even being a participant. That's that's the craziest thing about this. They they just win. They they just win by existing. They win. Like, it's insane. And I guess part of it comes down to accept taking the opportunities as they present themselves. Because they they could have passed up on a lot of opportunities. They could have passed up on the opportunity to check and board Russian ships that were moving through the straits and check them for Ukrainian grain. They could have passed up on that opportunity. They could have passed up on the opportunity to be a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. They could have passed up on this opportunity. And as a matter of fact, they could have sanctioned Russia instead. But they chose not to. And instead chose to take the opportunities as they presented themselves. And just over this short period of time that the war has gone on, they have just rocketed up to this incredible place of importance on the global stage. Just shot up. And it's almost—it's astronomical. Especially once this gas hub thing actually comes into fruition. Because right now it's just an agreement. And the only real pipeline they have is the, the Turkstream pipeline. But more pipelines are going to be built. Like, why would Russia stop there? Because the gas... Going from Turkey to Europe, they're, they're, sure, Turkey is a hub for gas. They're, they're going to become that. But where's the gas coming from? Because they're not producing it themselves, at least not yet, not until they get, not until they start tapping the Eastern Med. But where's the gas coming from right now? It's coming from Russia. But why would this idea stop there with just the Turk stream pipeline? If anything... And here's sort of a macro view of how this thing may go down, is that Turkey becoming a gas hub actually expands the potential reach of Russia's pipeline projects because they can always use Turkey as a sort of midi, a sort of forward operating position. There we go. Turkey will always be like a forward operating position. They can build their their pipeline from Russia to Turkey. And then from there, they can decide where they want to go. Like, in the future, we may see Russian gas pipelines running into the heart of the Middle East. They already have the consent of Turkey to move it through Turkey, so why not make the fullest of that? And send natural gas into the Middle East. The Middle East has lots of oil, but natural gas is a different story. See You can see that. You can see natural gas, Russian natural gas making its way into Lebanon. That would greatly alleviate their pain. With their depression. You can see Russian natural gas in Syria. As they try to rebuild from the civil war. You can see Russian natural gas going into Iran. 
one of the, the biggest markets potentially for the Russian natural gas in the region. You could see Russian pipelines making their way to northern Africa. Like, if we get creative enough with our thinking and factor in Turkey's maritime alliance with Libya on top of this uh, gas hub deal that they reached with the Russians, we could see Russian gas finding its way to places in North and Northeast Africa. Like just running straight through that, that maritime corridor that Russia and, and Libya have agreed to. Which I don't think that even if the other side of the Libyan civil war wins, that they're going to renege on this agreement. This is in their interest. Like, I think Turkey has really made some headway with this one. Like, they can't lose. Well, that, that's what I assume. Like, uh, maybe if the other side does win the civil war, they might shut that down and try to side with the people against Turkey. Like, countries like Greece and France. But that, that would come at their own expense. Well, for the time being, if we're if we're creative with our thinking, we could see a Russian pipeline running through Turkey, through that maritime corridor between Turkey and Libya, and then you have the gas dispensaries. You you have a, another smaller network of gas pipelines, distributing it to various countries in northern Africa, countries like Algeria, Tunisia, Libya itself, Egypt. Maybe even you start pushing into the deserts and you see countries like Niger and Mali and Chad and Sudan getting gas. Sudan, they're a big country and they're getting cheap electricity from the Ethiopians because the Renaissance Dam, you combine that with cheap gas from the Russians. So we might have an economic miracle in Sudan. That's a possibility. But if we're creative with our thinking, it becomes a realistic possibility, uh, a, a plausible possibility. I'll, I'll say that much. I don't know if it's necessarily realistic, but it can be done. If we take this idea of Turkey being a gas hub as far as we can push it. But it's a possibility now. It's a possibility now. And thinking back to my earlier speculations uh, this is this is ottoman turkey now <laughs> this is the new ottoman empire like because uh, all this gas would have to go through turkish territory meaning that turkey would get transit fees for it all because it would all go through turkey enriching the turkish state it's the spice trade all over again but where spices were a luxury back in the day Energy, in the form of oil and natural gas, is a necessity. But again, going back to my earlier speculations on Turkey, if you, if you remember way back on like episode one of the podcast, I talked about Turkey being the new Ottoman Empire and expanding into the Middle East to do so. I said that they'd substitute the spice trade for selling the oil of the Middle East to Europe, and they would collect transit fees on manufactured goods coming from China and Asia as they moved through the Suez Canal. I did not expect them to achieve something similar off of Russian gas exports alone. But then again, I didn't expect Russia to have gained as much steam as they have. Like I have never doubted Russia's position as a great power, even from the beginning. 
I just didn't expect them to be so great of a power as to be able to pull things like this off at the same time because they're fighting war right now. They're fighting war. They're fighting an economic war against all the West. At the same time, they're building pipelines everywhere. Like, this is not something I imagined the Russians would be capable of doing way back then. It was. It's only through the observation that I've learned what the Russians are capable of doing. And it's a lot more than I expected. And it's a lot more than many other people are going to be willing to admit to. Because a lot of people think Russia's a, a gas station masquerading as a country. A lot of people think Russia's a paper tiger. A lot of people think Russia's losing in Ukraine... All those illusions are going to get shattered by the end of this winter. I have a strong feeling of that. So looking at just how powerful the Russians are, they've managed to make this thing that I theorized Turkey could be into a reality without Turkey expanding territorially. That's... It's... Again... It all goes back to the difference in what good decisions over time can do for a country. It's it's marvelous. Turkey, Turkey, the results are marvelous. Russia, the results are about to be are marvelous and about to be even better. Right? They're about to take all of Ukraine. China, the results are fan fucking tastic. Look at Belarus. They threw their lot in with the Russians. Now they're safe and sound. They're safe and sound. Even while there's a war on their doorstep, they're safe and sound. Because no one in Europe is going to do anything to them. No one's going to touch them. Because no one wants to actually fight the Russians. Compare that to what we've been doing. We're going we're to sanction the Russians. We sanctioned the Russians, now we're paying high energy prices. China's a major in energy importer, just like Europe is, just like we are, yet they're not paying sky-high gas prices. They didn't sanction the country supplying them with gas. Look at Saudi Arabia, planning ahead, planning ahead for the day when they're going to have a massive competitor that isn't a part of OPEC, because America's not a part of OPEC, and after the things we've been through, I don't imagine we ever will be. I do not imagine we ever will be. Not after the 1970s, not after what's going on right now, because people are blaming OPEC, and even though the, the root causes us not being energy independent, because we would be benefiting from this, we would be benefiting from these higher and higher and higher gas prices, because we would be satisfied at home, and we could just benefit off the exports of our excess oil. We would be benefiting if we were still energy independent. But people are still going to have a very sour taste in their mouth when they hear the word OPEC. So, I don't think we're ever going to be a part of OPEC, which means we're not going to go along with their price controls and their production cuts when they do it. We're just going to expand production every time they, every time they reduce it and eat up their market share. Saudi Arabia is planning for the future. They're planning for the future. Because maybe one day oil isn't the end-all be-all anymore. Coal certainly isn't. It was everything back in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. Coal is almost irrelevant now. When, especially if you have oil or natural gas. 
what happens if we have breakthroughs in nuclear technology and we have actual fusion, fusion power? Suddenly, coal, uh, oil becomes the new coal at that point. Why have oil when you could have nuclear fission, a small fission reactor? Why have oil when you could have a fusion reactor? Saudi Arabia is planning ahead, and this is going to benefit them at some point later on down the line. They're going to thank themselves for having made this decision. And that's what good decisions can do for you in the long run. And I only pray that we ourselves here in America can make good decisions too. We can make them. We can. It's just a matter of, will we? But we'll find out in time. That is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Um, we've talked about so much, so many good decisions made by so many countries, and so many terrible decisions made by so many countries as well. And I can't stress enough the difference that it makes. But the world is changing. If if the, the results of those decisions are anything to go by, the world's definitely changing. But we are going to have fun watching it change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.